This is Clint here with a very special edition of the I Can't Believe You Watched That segment of the Popmatic Podcast. We are pleased to bring you an exclusive interview with Richard Blackburn, the writer, director, and co-star of the 1973 Southern Gothic cult classic, Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. Lamora will be playing in the Main Library's Auditorium on October 23rd as a part of our Thursday Nights of Terror Horror Film Festival and is presented through the generosity of Mr. Blackburn and the guys at Synapse Films. Lamora tells the tale of Lila Lee, the most innocent creature on God's earth who goes in search of her father, a known murderer and bank robber, and falls into a strange and poetic world of ghouls and vampires. Now let's get to the interview. Mr. Blackburn, could you talk a little bit about the influence that the South had on the film? Uh, my Southern uh, background is basically on uh, my mother's side of the family. My maternal uh, grandfather was from Eufaula, Alabama, and we had relatives in Memphis. And also on my father's side of the family, they were strictly Virginian, uh, both his uh, parents, my father's parents, and he grew up there in Richmond. So I spent a good deal of my time growing up down south. And in fact, the song that the old lady sings in the film was a song that my grandmother used to sing to me and, and, and just scare me to death with it. And that's why I put that in there. And actual um, lines of dialogue that I remembered my, from my... Uh, cousin Francie down in Richmond saying I actually put in the little girl's mouth and so it was pretty well I'd say peppered with a lot of my past experience down south. How did you go about financing the film? At the time there was a series called Count Yorga and Count Yorga was done for very little money and had and made a lot of money and so it was possible to interest people in doing a cheap horror film. And in that time, a cheap horror film was very cheap. Not today. You couldn't do it for the money that we did it for. And, you know, you could, you could really put something on film for something like, I'd say, oh, you know, $10,000, you could do it. And this is like I'm saying back in, in 73. We raised the money as, as best we could. And my father actually was the executive producer and uh, we went out and just put the money together. We made up a prospectus. And I had just graduated from the UCLA Film School. So we started out and we got the money and we made the movie. Of course, I've always said that because we had just, this was our first venture uh, into commercial filmmaking, we made every mistake you could make and then we invented some and made those. Like three things that you are absolutely not supposed to do in a, in a small uh, or inexpensive independent production. And one of them is night shooting. Another one is extensive costuming and make, makeup. And the third one is doing anything historical or out of period. So we did all three. And we didn't know that we shouldn't, but we just went ahead and did it. Was it always called Lamora? I know it was also known as Lady Dracula. The different titles of the movie comes from the fact that different distributors at different times took up the movie. Now, initially, the movie was called Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. Then it was released as Lamora. Then it was released as Lamora Lady Dracula. Then I think it was released even as, in the third title as different distributors took it. The name Lamora came from uh, my friend uh, Bob Fern, who had known someone with that name. And when he said the name, it just sounded right to me. I had never heard it before. And neither is anyone else, to my knowledge. How was Lamora received when it first came out? The film, when it was initially released, was pretty much of a failure. It was shown at the bottom half of bills at 
obscure drive-ins and very little response to it, and most of the response to it wasn't very good. In fact, even to this day, you can read the Leonard Maltin book, which gives it a black dot, meaning a bomb. He wasn't very happy with it, and I had just sort of written it off as a because it was an extremely, oh, let's say, painful experience making that movie, and then the result of it being so disappointing at the time. So I had sort of put it out of my mind until somewhere around, I guess it was the late 80s, when I began to hear from different people, especially abroad in, in Europe, I ran into an Italian woman who was a principessa who, upon finding out that I was the director of Lamora, started, you know, going on how all her friends loved it and all this stuff. And then I, sometime after that, a knock on my door and some kid had come out on a bus all the way from somewhere, God knows where, and wanted me to autograph glossy pictures from the film. And then it just started building. And at one time, it was only available on a bad Japanese print that was Japanese subtitles or something, and you could hardly hear it. It got to a point where several years ago it was shown at the Lincoln Film Festival and to, a, to packed crowds, and uh, Martin Scorsese, was he liked it, and he wanted a print of it, and all this stuff started. So it just shows you, I guess, that if you hang in there long enough, you know, you can, um, you can turn the corner and it can have a happy ending, but it took a while. The negative for Lamora was considered lost for 30 years. Where was the negative, and how was it found? Well, when we put the film out again on DVD, uh, initially it had been out on a VHS. The DVD, we gave it everything we had, and we were like to about two and a half days doing color corrections. I really think the DVD probably looks better than the uh, release print. And the print, all that time, had been just lying in a consolidated film industry's basement, and it had not even been cracked open. It was like in pristine condition, and it just, after they had struck the prints initially, they never reopened it, and oddly enough, I think we were something like a month away from them dumping it. When, so it was extremely, uh, you know, a happy occurrence that, that Synapse was interested, and Synapse made the effort when they got the information from me to track it down, and indeed, you know, they did just before it was thrown out. The film seems to have a European feel to it. What kind of style were you aiming for? You know, uh, when the film was uh, re-released several years ago and, and you know, appeared at the uh, uh, Lincoln Film Festival, the reviewer on uh, the Village Voice called it art exploitation, And I thought that was pretty, pretty good because at the mo- when it was released, it kind of, sort of fell between the cracks of an art film and an exploitation film. It really didn't have enough, oh, action or gore to be an exploitation film, yet because of its genre and subject matter and certain scenes in it, it was not really an art film. However, I had seen, of course, many uh, movies that were, being a a film student anyway and just interested in it, many, many movies that were influenced me and a lot of them that I didn't even realize had influenced me until much later when the film was made. Now, some of the movies were, uh, there was Moonfleet by uh, for the Fritz Lang movie in Cinemascope that was about smugglers in Cornwall in England in the 18th century, and that was like, a, instead of a young girl, it was a young boy's quest to um, 
find a, a secret, and that was from an, an old English novel called Moonfleet. I think that was came out sometime around the turn of the century, the last of uh, uh, the 19th century, and that was an influence on me. Another big influence was Night of the Hunter, the Charles Lawton, James Agee collaboration, and Davis Grubb, who was from West Virginia and who had written that great novel, and that was a big thing about the, the children, again, the children on a journey, and those films... Plus, I would say, in a literary way, uh, there was H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer, and his Shadow Over Innsmouth novella, which was, was a big deal for me when I was a teenager, and Arthur Machen, or Macon, however that is pronounced, the British writer who did something called The White People. That was a, and there were just so many influences in that movie. Now, when I was making it, I was not conscious of trying to do anything European. And as a matter of fact, I felt like William Winshot Bodine, who was the hack director, who even if a set fell down in the middle of a take said, print it, let's go, because he never had enough money to get it just right. So we were working at a feverish clip because we, uh, we doubled our budget and we had incredible problems. We had to let our assistant director go because he tried to take over the movie and there was a lot of drama going on in back of the camera. So I was very pressured, let's say. I had a wonderful cameraman, I had a wonderful art director, and because of those gentlemen, I think the film turned out much better than it would have without them, and especially at our, our schedule. We were consciously trying to make a movie that pushed the envelope or pushed the genre or was something unique. That's, that is true. But whether uh, or not, I don't think it, we were really thinking about making, making it look European Although um, we had all of us uh, in film school, of course, had seen so many great European films, they were probably, you know, bouncing about in our heads anyway. Cheryl Smith gives such a beautiful and understated performance in the film. How did you go about casting her? Now, this was my first attempt at a uh, at a feature film as a director, and being a tyro at it, I did not realize that my lead actress was as good as she was. As a matter of fact, um, I was constantly trying to get her to act more or to be more frightened or something. But the, the interesting thing is that, thank God, she didn't do that. Because, you know, when I'd see her, because it gave the whole film a kind of, because she's on the screen most of the time, it gave it a whole dreamlike state. A lot of it is due to her reaction, which is almost like stunned or trance-like, in, instead of being just like, you know, like a, well, like a scream queen or something like that. And that has, has distinguished the film, so I just thank my lucky stars that Cheryl either didn't listen to me or was unable to do that or whatever the reason was. Because we interviewed a lot of people for that um, part, and many of them were more seasoned actresses than Cheryl. But I knew, and this is where I uh, give myself the credit, I knew that because it was a movie and not a stage play, you're going to be right on top of this girl all the time. And she had to look young, and she had to be somebody that you were going to, you know, like enough to follow throughout an entire film. And that's why, even with her, you know, relative inexperience, I think she had done maybe at that time some sort of an art film or something, or I don't know what it was, but she had very little experience, and she was just a natural. And because she was so natural... She was a winner, and we're very happy that not only that I picked her, but that she went her own way in that movie. And I'm only sorry to say that 
she passed away before the whole sort of revival of the film occurred, just about actually a, a month or so before it was shown at the Lincoln Film Fest. Lamora has such a strong cult following. What do you attribute that to? I think at least one thing I've always said about the movie, there's, you know, I can watch that movie and say, oh my God, why did I do that? Or, oh Lord, this doesn't, I should have directed her totally different or whatever it is. But at least even when the movie was, and my spirits were at their lowest when the movie was released and the reception was so bad, I said at least I had done something that was unique. I still believe that the movie, as a horror movie, does not, anything quite like that film. There are things that approach it. There's some things that are, that are sort of touch on it, but I think it with the 30s flavor that I did, and that, that's one thing, it doesn't date that badly because even though it was done, say in 1973, there are no platform shoes or oversized bow ties or, you know, anything like that. So it's kind of, by doing it in another time, it sort of made it in a funny way timeless. And of course, I suppose... You know, the entire kind of dreamlike quality of the movie is something that, um, you know, has attracted people over the years to it. You've been listening to an interview with Richard Blackburn, writer, director, and co-star of Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. Once again, I would like to thank Mr. Blackburn and the guys at Synapse Films for granting us the permission to show Lamora, and we do hope to see you at the Mann Library on October 23rd. Thank you for listening.